Sony. Hello, Canada. Today's date is February 18th, 2024. Welcome to a full edition of Canadian Common Sense, Canada's Issues, in about an hour. It is Tony in Saskatchewan. And Lewis out here in BC. How are you, my friend? Well, it's a good day. It's a good day. And it's going to be a better day once we're done this show, because boy, have we got a lot to talk about. <laughs> oh, you're just, you're just teasing me here. I'm just, you're going to ruin my day. I know it. <laughs> no, no, you're going to be so fired up that you're just going to get out there and get all kinds of stuff done today. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we've got a lot of housekeeping stuff to go through. So we'll fire right through that. Let us start in Toronto, the center of the known universe. And Lewis, you had brought this up on a past show when we were talking about property taxes, how the council will come up with a higher figure and then settle on a lower figure so that citizens don't feel so bad about being gouged. Well, Chairman Chow took your advice. Now, there was a poll that had come out about a week and a half ago that showed she had 55% approval rating, to which I shook my head and said, well, whatever, Toronto. And then... She, uh, a week later, they approved the budget for Toronto and it's going to have, well, first they had said a 10.5% tax increase. It's okay, Toronto. You're only going to get a nine and a half percent property tax increase. Whew. Yeah. Not exactly the, uh, the slash and burn that I, you know, suggested chairman Chow should do, you know, like usually you'll get oh, it's going to be a 6.5% increase, but we got it down to four. Yeah, this is 10.5 to 9.5. Whoa, you guys really sharpened your pencils. Yeah, yeah and then couple that with 7% last year, which wasn't Chairman Chow's fault, that was John Tory, but ouch, to live in Toronto right now. Whew. Yeah, elections have consequences. Yep, exactly. So uh, sticking with Toronto, there was a protest at Mount Sinai Hospital last Sunday, and it was a pro-Hamas protest who, quote-unquote, just happened to be walking by there on their way to the Israeli consulate, so decided to protest at the hospital. And here's where it gets interesting. Blocking entrance to the hospital for both patients and staff, yet Nobody got arrested, and yet in 2021, the Trudeau government passed an edict saying that people could not protest in front of hospitals and block entrance to patients or staff. I guess the double standard still applies. Well, I'm going to probably have an unpopular opinion here. I think that uh, I think the police have to be very careful. These protests are very. Um, flammable uh they could get really out of hand very fast and if police go in there and start arresting people i think it could get violent very quickly and um and i think that uh i think the police will probably make some arrests um kind of like with the uh the mall situation there before christmas it but it i mean it took them six weeks to make an arrest but they did um I I hope they make some arrests. I I mean now that I'm saying this I I'm probably wrong because it was uh um I mean how do you 
how do you find out the identity of people who are masked? I mean, that's, that's the thing that really bothers me about this whole thing is that nobody is like all the people who are supporting these protests. I mean, how do you explain the masks? Like if these people are truly proud of their position and are proud of, of their stance on this situation, why are they wearing masks? Like if you, if you're, if you're, if you're in the right, you don't need to wear masks. Yeah. Maybe they're paid protesters. They are, they're allowed to cross the border after all. Yeah, that's true. Well, yes, we never know. So we'll, uh, Stick in Toronto, but go to Queen's Park, because Doug Ford decided that when he was asked about Danielle Smith's parental rights bill, said, nope, I want nothing to do with it. I'm uh, I'm not interested in, in talking about that issue at all. But what I will talk about is license plates, because that was popular last year when they got rid of the, the sticker to renew license plates. Well, now I'm going to announce that license plates will auto-renew every year. thought, Wow. That's a hard hitting issue. Thanks. Yeah, you know. <laughs> come on. Man up, man. Like like this is a popular issue in the country. This isn't a popular issue in Alberta. This is a popular issue in the country. It's 80% or 81% of parents in this country support Daniel Smith's uh proposed bill. Yeah, so isn't this a no-brainer? Yeah, this is a no-brainer. And I mean, let, let's, you know, th- at some point you got to stand up for what's right, not what's popular, although this is actually popular as well. But, you know, uh, the measure of a real, uh, uh, the measure of a decent person is what they stand for. And sometimes what you stand for isn't the popular thing, but the right thing. It just so happens that the right thing is also popular right now. And you have politicians that are afraid to take a stance on it because, you know, it might affect their reelection chances. Well, guess what? Supporting this is going to probably strengthen your reelection chances. Yeah. I mean, just because the lamestream media is against it doesn't mean that the 80% of Canadian parents are right. Cause they've, they've all come out in favor. Yeah, well, and let's be real here. The vast majority of people who vote in this country are parents. I mean, whether they've got kids at home or not anymore, they were parents. And they understand the importance of this issue. That's a good point. Yeah. So a uh, couple more housekeeping notes. So um, we get a lot of messages on our on our Facebook page. And for those n- newer listeners to the show, uh, when you do send us a Facebook message, it comes to me because way back in the day when we started, I set up a Facebook page kind of for fun, uh, just off, just a branch off of my personal account. So I'll get your, your Facebook messages. I'll forward them on to Lewis. So uh, typically when we answer, it's me. And uh, listener Trevor sends us a lot of, a lot of messages and I always appreciate hearing from them. And I'm pretty sure if I ever meet uh, Trevor, he's probably going to punch me right in the face because he, <laughs> he's, <laughs> He's he's wasted an awful lot of his personal capital trying to get me on 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 Team Pierre Poiliev, and as many of you know who have been with us for a while, I'm a member of the PPC and a fanboy of Max Bernier. So uh, Trevor and I have some fun back and forth on this. So re- most recently, he sent a video to me a uh, TikTok and said, "See, this is why Pierre is going to win the biggest majority in Canadian history." And I actually agree, Pierre is going to win a big majority, and at least I believe he will. 
But it still had to send Trevor back a meme of a purple wave about to engulf Parliament Hill with PPC written in there. So, <laughs> so, sorry, not sorry, Trevor. <laughs> it just it just shows, you know, how optimistic you are, Tony. Because, <laughs> because that's never going to happen. But uh but I remember when when Trevor first brought this uh prediction of his to us uh back last fall, uh saying right, it might even been before that, uh might have even been last summer when he first said to us, hey, Pierre Poliev's going to win the biggest majority in Canadian history. And and I just, I remember on the show, I laughed and I said, not going to happen. Um, he's going to win, but it's not going to happen that it's going to be the biggest majority in history because, uh, you know, it, it would have to be one hell of a majority to beat um, uh, Mulroney's, you know, first term, right? And because that was the biggest majority in Canadian history. And we might have to eat our words because latest polling is showing Pierre Polyev with having this massive, massive majority. I don't think it's going to be the biggest, but it is actually, you know, it's, it's close. I mean, they're, they're predicting 212 seats. Yeah, so we'll, uh, and we'll talk a bit more about that in some of the show topics. But yeah, we uh, we may have to admit that Trevor, you might have, you might be onto something. Yeah, I think I think to be the biggest majority of all time, it has to be uh, like a the, a higher percentage of seats because we don't have the same number of seats as we did back when Mulroney uh, won his. And I think we'll have to double check on this, but I think it has to be two hundred and twenty seats or more to be bigger than Mulroney's. Yeah, actually, I think it was we crunched it about two thirty five or somewhere. Oh, two thirty five. Okay, so higher than I thought. Okay. Yeah, I think it was somewhere in that range. Yeah, we had, so, we had done the numbers on a past show. So. Yeah, so I'm I'm still standing by my my original reaction. Uh, well, I mean, not without the laughing this time, but the uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's I I just don't see it as possible for that for Pierre to win. 235 plus seats uh quebec just does not want to come on board um they seem to be the only province in the country i mean what's wrong with quebec i you know i quebec has always been an outlier um but i don't understand what it is about quebecois that they don't have this like uh disgust for corruption like the rest of us do <laughs> but yeah. um i mean ontario is always a holdout but ontario has finally come on board you know they're one of ontario is usually one of the last ones to come on board for the conservatives and and they finally have come on board but quebec is still going no 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 you're not gonna take us <laughs> yeah <laughs> all right so a couple more housekeeping notes uh Listener Ryan wrote in for the first time, just a uh, logger and rancher up in Northern BC, just to say, Hey guys, I've um, been listening for a couple of years. You're uh, part of my Monday mornings. So uh, thank you, Ryan. That's actually when I listen is on Monday mornings as well. So, um, so thanks for, for tuning in and very encouraging words saying that Canada needs more guys like us. And I'm actually starting to believe that as we, we do this show more and more that um, yeah, we do need some more conservative voices out there. 
Wait, you only just started believing that, Tony? I've been believing that ever since I was a teenager <laughs> that we needed more people like me. Yeah. <laughs> and good <laughs> thing we have you. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> All right. So two more housekeeping notes. Uh, first, we're about to lose a legend in Canadian sporting world. Um, anybody who follows curling has to know the name Jennifer Jones. She has literally won everything. And she has announced that this uh, this year's Scotty's Tournament of Hearts is her last. She's retiring. So um, what a great run. And definitely well-deserved retirement. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a long career. Uh, I, I remember watching her play, God, probably more than 20 years ago. Um, yeah, congratulations and uh, happy retirement. I mean, I think the Scotties is on right now, so this is the last uh, last tournament that she's going to be in. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, that's awesome. And since February 14th passed by this past week, I uh, just want a little reminder, never forget that February 14th, 2022, was the day that Justin Trudeau invoked the Emergencies Act, unleashing armed thugs to break up a peaceful protest with dancing bouncy castles and barbecues and these sent in horses to trample old ladies on mobility scooters never forget dark. canada yep dark day dark yep. day definitely was all right well a bright day on our show lots of great stuff to talk about so on the show today stephen guibault minister of everything the canada carbon credit more on arrive scam Good news on firearms, land use, and more. Where do you want to start, sir? Well, let's let's start with Stephen Gilbo. He's always one of my favorite topics. You know, and I'm going to plug this one more time. There is a parody account on X, Stephen Gilbo, Minister of Environment parody account. If you don't follow that on X, you've got to check that one out. That is one of the funniest accounts on X. Yes, however... <laughs> It's very believable <laughs> well, it, it, <laughs> because, because he's, <laughs> they say some pretty outrageous things, but I'm pretty sure still Stephen Gilbo would actually say those things. So it's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you know, you know, that, that, uh, when the onion stopped being funny because everything was in real life was more ridiculous than what the onion was saying. That's what Stephen Gilbo's parody account is like. Well, and it's funny because you'll read the comments on his posts and there's always at least one or two that, that were like, okay, I, I was really angry till I realized this was a parody account. I really thought you were serious. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and that's because that's how ridiculous the real Stephen Gilbo is, is that a parody account is taken seriously. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so what is Stephen Gilbo up to this time? Well, he's decided that instead of just being environment minister and energy minister and you know, minister of whatever he feels like. He's now in the transport business. And he told him a uh, meeting to Montreal that yeah, the federal government is not going to invest in roads anymore because our existing infrastructure is just fine the way it is. And our government wants Canadians to use ma mass transit, public public transit, and active transit, aka walking and cycling and we just wanted canadians to get out of cars altogether and i thought well that's ridiculous in itself but 
aren't you also the same guy who said you wanted us to drive EVs? So um, talking out of, well, multiple sides of his mouth now. Yeah, this guy's, this guy's, a, I was almost going to say a bad word again. Um, this guy is an idiot. I mean, I'm all for cycling and walking, of course. Who isn't? I mean, it's it's a healthy way of getting around, right? Um, but we do live in a country where much of this country is covered in snow and ice for almost six months of the year. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I'm just... It, this is how much of an idiot he is. I mean, he says things that are so stupid that it actually renders me speechless. Um, and I, and I have a hard time finding words to describe my, my utter like disbelief at that something this dumb came out of his mouth, but I don't, we do live in a Northern country, right? And so many of the decisions and the policies that, that have been coming out of the federal government and provincial governments in this country lately that, it makes me wonder like if they even remember what winter is and where are these people in the winter? Because <laughs> winter is a real thing and um, cycling and walking in the winter in this country is not a realistic expectation. I mean, if you want to expect people to do that in the summers, yeah, sure. But you're not going to get very many people doing that. Most people don't have jobs that are close enough to their Oh, 15-minute cities. Ooh, there's a there's a good thought there. That, hmm. Yeah. Okay, I see what you're doing. I see what you're doing. Yeah, well, he, <clears throat> excuse me, he did say there's a couple of really good quotes that I had to write down from his, his speech there that government will be there to support maintenance, but the government has decided that existing road structure is perfectly adequate to respond to the needs that we have. Tell that to anybody that drives a 401, by the way. And there will be no more envelopes from the federal government to enlarge the road network because government is intent on moving people out of their cars and into public transportation. And I thought, show me a city where public transit is actually efficient and can actually get you where you need to go in a reasonable amount of time. Like maybe Toronto with the T with the, the subway, the TTC, maybe Montreal, they've got a good sub subway network. Vancouver's got the sky train, which I've used a few times and didn't find very efficient, but Edmonton well, transit sucks. Saskatoon transit sucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say Vancouver SkyTrain is very efficient. I I when I go down to Vancouver, I don't even drive very much. I use SkyTrain because it, it it actually works really well, but the problem is, is it only goes to a few places, right? Like there's three, I think there's three lines. So, but you so if you're within walking distance of one of those lines, you're grit, you're you're good, but if you're not, like SkyTrain's kind of useless to you. Um, but um but uh, you're right. Edmonton's is garbage. Uh, Calgary's is garbage. Um, I, I don't know Saskatoon's or Regina's, but but for sure, Edmonton and Calgary's public transit system is not good. Their trains are awful. Um, but uh, but I mean, like this is 
people don't want to get out of their cars. People like being by themselves in their cars in the mornings and after work. They don't want to be sardined into a, into a, a train where, you know, people are wearing too much cologne or perfume or they're not wearing deodorant or they're, uh, or someone's farting. Uh, I mean, cause that does happen. I used to ride the train in Calgary when I lived there. And I mean, it, it's not enjoyable in the least. If you want to make people miserable, force them all into public transit, force them all to, uh, um, live in apartment buildings and, uh, you know, take away their freedoms, which this government is hell bent on doing and all, all of those things. Well, that's true. And when you brought up the riding the, the public transit, it actually made me think of something else. I remember in my university days, riding the, the LRT in Edmonton, the train, and you'd have a lot of panhandlers walking up and down the train. And yeah. well, well now in Toronto, you, they've gone beyond panhandling and you've got, well, people stabbing people on the train. So um, there's another reason not to take public transit. Just saying, I feel safer <laughs> in my car. <laughs> yeah, that too. Yeah. <laughs> so um, Mr. Guibault also said that, you I mean, the money that the government would, would spend on asphalt and concrete is better invested into projects that will help fight climate change and adapt to its impacts. And then big surprise, he actually got pushback and said, oh, no, no. I was mistranslated. I actually just meant big roads. Oh, yeah, oh, big roads. Big roads. Okay, I see. Yeah. Well, here's a problem with his plan. The same party that says that our road network is adequate is importing a million new people every year. Right. Right. Well, those roads are going to be pretty inadequate very quickly. Yeah, well, exactly. And then uh, listener Bill had wrote in that, well, hey, I got to drive 93K one way to go get my uh, my big rig to go to work. So uh, if you think I'm walking, well, you've got another thing coming. Well, <laughs> you should live within 15 minutes of your big rig. Yeah, geez, Bill, come on. Come on, Bill. <laughs> one more thing about Stephen Gibo, and uh, actually, we'll talk a bit more about the road roads as well here, because uh, anybody who's driven across the country, especially if taking the Trans Canada, which is a quote unquote big road, um, across northern Ontario, the Highway 11 that goes the north route, even the 17 that goes along Lake Superior, you're talking thousands of miles with no shoulders, a two lane road. And in the case of the Lake Superior route, a road with lots of hills and curves on it. And you're thinking that, okay, we're going to increase our population. You're going to increase the transportation network because we've got to, well, feed these people and supply them with materials. And you don't want to put money into those roads. Uh, you're probably going to ask for even more crashes and incidents than we have now. And there's a lot. Yeah, well, and... They just finished, uh, they just completed the, um, the expansion and twinning of the trans Canada through the, uh, through the Rockies, uh, between Alberta and BC here. Uh, that project has been going on for, God, we'll have to double check these numbers, but I believe it's over a decade, uh, that they've been, oh yeah, it's been longer than that because it was when I still lived in Alberta. So we're talking 20 years. I think they started on this 20 years ago and uh, 
and it finally completed this past uh, winter. Um, so congratulations on your last infrastructure project, Stephen Gilbo, but, uh, it's a doozy cause it was, it's great. Like the new, the new trans Canada through the Rockies is amazing. Oh, good. So, uh, now do Ontario. Oh, wait, we're not touching those roads anymore. <laughs> yeah. No more money. Yep. Sorry. Done. But yeah. Stephen Gilbo did, uh, Maybe he, maybe he's a stand-up comedian and just hasn't admitted that he's a comedian. Because he did make a press conference and talked about how much the United States envies Canada's carbon tax because it is, quote, the cheapest way to reduce emissions. Yeah. When you said he was a stand-up, maybe he's a stand-up comedian. I said, yeah, but he's not funny. And then you said that, and he's funny. <laughs> well, that's funny, yeah, especially since, A... Canada does not actually track the emissions that that are saved as a result of the carbon tax. And B, go ahead and poll any U.S. city and ask how many citizens are in favor of a carbon tax for the United States. Well, see, he did say that it was U.S. congressmen and U.S. senators that have told him that they are jealous of the fact that we have a carbon tax. So it's... The people who want to take more money out of our pockets that are saying that they're jealous, not the people who have to pay it. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, and and here's the thing. Somebody better not tell Stephen Gilbo, or maybe they should. Maybe they should tell Stephen Gilbo that the U.S. is cutting carbon emissions faster than Canada is without a carbon tax. Yeah, and um, well, actually, I'm curious, Lewis, how exactly are they making that happen? Through uh, regulation and technology. How about that? I know damn well that Andrew Scheer had even talked about that as a way of cutting Canada's emissions back in 2019. Yeah, and Steve and Pierre Poliev is talking about it now. Yeah, and well, what do you know? The U.S. decided that, hey, we're going to close coal power plants and go to natural gas. And the U.S. said, hey, you know what? We could curb global emissions as well if we export LNG to other markets to help them get off of coal. Yeah. Now, I, I know that Joe Biden has recently made some moves to try to reverse that trend, but yeah, um, the U.S. actually did exactly what we should have been doing all along. Yeah, and the reason that we killed our LNG projects is because the American LNG companies are paying protesters to protest our LNG projects so that we don't get them completed so that we don't compete with them on the world market. These are not environmentalists that are protesting these, these projects. They're paid protesters that are being paid by competitors the thing is, is that this all comes around and eventually bites those competitors in the ass themselves because uh, it actually does have an effect on public opinion and public opinion eventually turns on the people who are paying the protesters in the first place. Yeah, that's right. And uh, It's very short-sighted. Yeah, and that's actually the same with any pipeline projects in Canada, those same paid protesters. And you had pointed out that uh, back in the, the lockdown times that, hey, there's a not a lot of protesting going on because they can't cross the border. And yeah. so that, that really exposed that uh, you were right. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, we look at Trans Mountain. I mean, Trans Mountain was being built during COVID and the and there was no protests. There were protests before COVID. And then when COVID happened, the protests all went away. And and they didn't return again until they opened the border again. Yeah, that's right. So, so all right. So the last thing we'll talk about, Stephen Gibo, and it's not even Stephen Gibo so much, but the uh the carbon tax as uh, well, the carbon tax rebate has now been rebranded. And we, and you had actually brought this up a few weeks ago, but we didn't really talk about it on the show. We had other things going on. But the, uh, yep, the carbon tax rebate is now being rebranded because apparently can, Canadians don't get it when you put a climate incentive or climate action incentive into their bank accounts every, what is it, three months, six months? Whatever I don't know because I don't get one. Yeah, I um well, we do because my wife and I file together, but I don't even I can't remember what exactly it's called. But now it's going to be called the Canada Carbon Credit, so that you know your carbon tax will also give you a carbon credit. And mm-hmm. uh yeah, I find that really kind of funny because you know, we they love to tell us that oh, the carbon tax or the carbon rebate gives gives back more money than you put in and we already know that's not true. So uh, Aaron Gunn, who um, we talked about in the show before, he was made Canada is Dying and Vancouver is Dying documentaries. He's now a candidate for the Conservative Party of Canada. His post on X in re- re- response to this, quote, anyone else notice that whenever a liberal NDP policy becomes wildly unpopular with Canadians, their instinctive reaction isn't for self-reflection or a change in direction, but simply to rebrand the same failed policy as something new. And then he gives some examples. Safe supply equals safer supply to prescribed alternatives. Safe injection sites to overdose prevention sites. Budget deficits to investments in our future. Phase out the oil sands to just transition. And now they want to rebrand the carbon tax? If they think they can fool Canadians this time, they're wrong. Okay, Aaron, I don't actually agree with your last statement, but everything else you're spot on. Yeah, I don't agree with Aaron Gunn's last line in that post either. It's <laughs> the Canadians are very susceptible to these rebrands, which is why they do them. Um, yeah. I mean, you look at what how the uh, uh, how the narrative has changed around safe supply, right, and around uh, overdose prevention sites and stuff like this, like. Like they really have like p- public perception has changed a lot around them. And it's only recently that, um, that people are starting to wake up to what they really are and why they're, why they're not working and why that there are things, why these things should actually be, um, uh, unpopular like they were. And, uh, but the rebrands usually work at first. So, um, but I don't see how this rebrand is actually, going to be impactful um i mean it's still a carbon credit which sounds an awful lot like what it used to be uh called but i i don't know i mean it's it's uh what it does is it just shows that the liberals are scrambling oh absolutely yeah and what stephen gibo did not want you to find out canada but well we're here for you Two of the largest investment conglomerates in the world, that being BlackRock Capital and J.P. Morgan Chase, 
have both decided that maybe the climate change action business isn't really as profitable as we thought because both of those multi-trillion dollar investment firms are now announced they are pulling out of the UN Climate Action 100 group, which is a fund that's dedicated to climate action projects. What do you mean climate change isn't profitable? Yeah, and banks will invest in anything. Like they, they have no morals or ethics or values or anything like that. Uh, the only thing that they value is money. And so if they're making money, they're invested in it. And uh, BlackRock, as we know, has absolutely zero ethics and morals. So they will, they, and they will absolutely invest in anything as long as it makes money. And if they're not investing in this because it, then it's not making money, that's the only reason why they would pull out of those investments. Yeah, exactly. So uh, there was a video that I saw on X from Chris Sky, who, who of course went completely bombastic and said, this shows you the climate thing is a hoax. And it's like, well, let's not go that far. Let's just say that maybe some uh, people are being red pilled that that's not a good investment at the very least. Yeah. At the very least. I mean, I, I am one of the people who, I, I'm not going to say that it's a hoax. Uh, what I am going to say is that the um, the impact that humans have on it is questionable. Yeah, and, and that that's where I've been all along. Yeah, does it change? Of course, because it's been changing for millennia. I mean, uh, where yeah. I am right now in Saskatchewan used to be underwater. It was an ocean. So. Yeah, and do and do humans have an impact on the on the climate? Of course, we have some impact. You can't have eight billion people on on a planet and not have an impact but how much of an impact is the question right and it's not nearly the impact and this is coming you know from a dummy like me um but my opinion is is that it's not having the impact that that they're trying to tell us it is i mean Look, I mean, every single prediction, every single prediction for that that has been made by whether it's Al Gore or the IPCC uh, since the 90s, every single prediction has not only failed to materialize, but has been so off the mark that it's not even worth mentioning, right? But they they keep claiming that they're right about this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the ice caps were going to be ice free or the polar, the, the North pole and South pole were going to be ice free by, what was it? 2013 or 2014, I believe it was. Yeah. Well, and Miami was going to be underwater. Right. Um, that uh, Manhattan would be underwater by 2020. Uh, I mean, it's 2024. The water level hasn't even changed. Like it's <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't know what people have to see to to start believing that this is all this is all bunk. Yeah, it's all a big scam that always has tax increases attached to it. Any any time that there's any time that someone claims that a tax is going to solve a problem, the problem is not real. No, that's actually a really good way to look at it. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So let's talk a little bit about well, what Pierre Poiliev is labeled as arrive scam, and I think that's actually a very accurate way to put it now we had reminded you on last week's show that there was a firm in toronto that decided to make a copycat arrive can app just to see if they uh they could do it for less than 
what we thought was $52 million or $54 million, sorry. And they did it and they said, yeah, it would probably have cost about 240 quarter million at any rate. And as you pointed out, their app actually worked. Well, now Auditor General Karen Hogan says this arrive scam is at least $59.5 million, but she can't figure that out because there is a quote, lack of a paper trail and a lot poor uh documentation a very a lack of documentation actually saying you know who build who for what but what we do know is gc services the uh two-person it contractor based in suburban ottawa happened to have made well for themselves 19 million dollars off arrive can and since 2015 when Pierre Trudeau be, or Pierre Trudeau, Justin Trudeau became prime minister, GC services. Well, they've actually had $258 million in government IT contracts. Pretty sweet gig for two dudes from suburban Ottawa. Yeah. And the revelation is, is that they have done absolutely no IT work. Yeah. They're just simply there to subcontract workout. I thought, well, that's a pretty good gig to make a few phone calls and send a few emails. Yeah. This is very reminiscent of that former liberal MP who got the, the uh, COVID contract for, um, for providing PPE and uh, never delivered a single piece of it. And it was $253 million. Ah, uh, Lewis, that was ventilators. You're referring to or Frank, ventilators. That's the, it. Sorry. Frank Bayless, the former Montreal MP who yeah. six days before receiving a contract for that 237 mil, was it? Uh, it was close to 250 million. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah, whatever it was. Yeah. So incorporated a, a company six days before receiving a sole source contract to provide ventilators and didn't provide a single one. Hmm. Yeah. And kept the money by the way uh this is and, and so it's not like this whole thing with uh this gc services or whatever it's called um <clears throat> i mean they they did no work i mean they they subcontracted things out they didn't but they didn't actually do any of the work themselves and they've never done any of the work that they've been contracted to do uh since 2000 and was it 2015 or 2016, they, they've been, like you said, over $250 million in, in contracts have been awarded to them. And they've done absolutely no work on these, you know, contracts themselves. I mean, and there's what, 76% of the people who were contracted to work on this Arrive Can app uh, did no work for their money. Yeah, that's that, that part alone is that, that, that figure by itself is scandalous. 76% of the people did not actually even do any work on this app. Like, yeah, like I mean, this is, this is, um, this is infuriating because, and, and everybody should be just absolutely livid over this because this is our money. Like this is, this is our tax dollars. This is the money you work hard for. And then the government forcefully takes from you and then they just throw it away and give it to their friends. Yeah. Well, and, and not that I have any proof of this, I'm just going to allege that a lot of politicians seem to get rich while in office. And 
I wonder if rewarding their friends with contracts is part of that that uh, that whole process. Well, that's you know, it just I, seems... I I allegedly agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, you know, you're right. I mean, you look at just look at Justin Trudeau on his own. I mean, look at how much his his personal wealth has grown since he was elected. I mean, when he when he was running for the leadership of the Liberals, he claimed, I believe it was uh, a personal net wealth of one point five million dollars. And today he's worth uh, over a hundred or right around one hundred and thirty million. Well, how's that possible? The guy makes four hundred thousand dollars a year. Right. Yeah. So uh, right, right there is a very glaring example of, well, he got really, really rich and nobody really knows how he got so rich. And nobody is talking about it except us. Like this is this is so frustrating because I am sick and tired of politicians being above the law, like literally above the law. Like I'm so sick and tired of them having no consequences whatsoever for the for the 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 crap they do. Like I'm done with this. Like like the like this government, we know. I mean, it's there's no argument even. They are the most corrupt government in the history of this country. By far. It's not even a close second. I mean, Bevoda charged $16 for an orange juice. And that's as close as, as, as Harper got to this. And this guy has been, I'm allegedly stealing our money for eight years. I mean, I'm just, somebody needs to go to jail. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I don't want to sound like one of these people who, uh, you know, I'm not talking, this isn't banana Republic stuff. What's, what's happening to Trump in the U S I mean, and everybody on this sh who listens to this show knows I am not a fan of Trump, but what is happening to Trump is banana Republic stuff. The, the, you know, the Democrats have weaponized the DOJ to take out their political opponents. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm actually saying that politicians need to have consequences for their actions, not just losing an election. It should be more than that. I mean, when you're in office and you're doing the things that they, that this government has done over the past eight years, you need to face consequences, legal consequences for what you've done. Maybe if they did, maybe if they did have these uh, um, consequences that maybe, maybe, just maybe, politicians would be a lot more careful with our money instead of, you know, doing what they do with it. Yeah. Well, that, that's really well said. And well, our, our regular listeners also know that I am a fan of Trump. So we've, uh, we've had a few discussions on that front over the years as well. And you're right. I mean, it's completely banana Republic stuff, what they're doing to him. I mean, they're literally trying to jail their political opponents. And if the, if it happens down there, I mean, it will eventually come here too. And I'm with you. I really think it's horrible that we allow the decision-making in this country to be left up to people who suffer zero consequences for making the wrong decisions. I mean, if these people worked in any kind of a private sector company and they screwed up this badly, they'd be fired and they'd be charged and they'd be punished for what they do. But instead they just go, eh, you know what, what are you going to do? It's government. They're corrupt. 
like, yeah, well, we know they're corrupt, but we can actually do something about it if we really tried. Like, A, get rid of them, and B, hound them afterward by charging them with, well, whatever we can. Well, and the thing is, is that people like the Auditor General need to have legal powers, I think. I think the Auditor General, when she when, when they do an audit of a program, and if they find improprieties, they should have the legal ability to have uh, the police investigate. I mean, yeah. the, I, I'm just, I'm so tired of this. It, it's, we are taxed so heavily in this country. The government just does not care, but we are taxed so heavily in this country and they, and they, and, and, and money is being stolen. Allegedly. Allegedly. So it needs to stop. And the only way to stop it is consequences. And there's no consequences right now. No, that's right. No, Pierre Poiliev has asked the RCMP to expand their investigation into Arrive Can. But we already know who uh, who appoints the commissioner of the RCMP. So I'm not really all that confident that anything's going to happen there. Yeah, no, I'm not confident at all in that. Yeah, and let's just talk about the app itself. I mean, you've experienced had experience with the app because you traveled to the states while while COVID was going on. There were ten thousand people who were falsely sent into quarantine by this app. Because uh, just as a refresher of our memories, people the the app would say, "Oh, you're you they don't have their vaccinations up to date. Well, they need to go into quarantine." And a lot of people just said, "F you, we're not going into quarantine," based on some of the absolute pardon my French shit show that went on in some of those quarantine hotels. A lot of people just said, Nope, not doing it. And the government, the app could not track them to see if they actually went into quarantine or not. I mean, this app was completely bloody useless and you experienced that yourself. And, but it cost us North of $60 million apparently. Well, oftentimes you would upload the file that you needed to upload, like your vaccine passport the app would crash and you go back in and the document never uploaded. Um, or it did upload. And the next time you opened the app, it was gone or, you know, it, it was such an awful app. And I believe it was more than 10,000. Wasn't I thought it was something like 14,000 people were, were, um, oh, could uh, be. Yeah. improperly sent to these COVID hotels. Right. Um, and they were sent to these COVID hotels because the documents weren't properly uploaded in the app, but they had them printed out. They had them in their hand. Like many people, like some, like old people, like there's a lot of senior citizens just printed everything out because they don't even know how to use the app. And I'm sorry, I'm not that old. I am 40. Well, at the time I was like 45 years old. And I didn't, couldn't figure out the app. Like it, it was a real pain to even figure out. And once I figured it out, the thing would crash constantly. Whenever I tried uploading a document, it would crash. And it would, and sometimes the upload would take as long as an hour. It was, it was unbelievable. Like I said before, you know, I would be working on it, on uploading all the documents from myself and my family. And it would take, it, it took three days to get everything uploaded properly because of how often the app crashed, how long it took for uh, a document to load 
and uh and then sometimes like i said the document wasn't loaded the next time i opened the app so i'd have to load it again um you know it took three days and and i know people who were trying to figure the app out the night before they were leaving on a holiday and uh and they 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 couldn't get it done like i actually know someone who ended up in one of those covid hotels because uh they could not get the app to work yeah and the funny thing is this app is uh well again that's karen hogan discovered this app was updated uh, about 150 times and they still couldn't get it right yeah like it's uh so obviously whatever work gc services contracted out they did not get any value for their money whatsoever and uh i love listening to the to the pundits on the lamestream media because there was uh Bashi Capellos had some people on and the one lady just said, well, we clearly need to get some in-house expertise in government to, uh, to develop these apps. And I just said, expertise and government don't belong in the same sentence, lady. No, no. I, I mean, government shouldn't even be involved in these things because government, whatever government touches, they mess it up. And I mean, we know that because there isn't a single program the government runs in this country that actually works well. Not one. I dare you. I dare you to name one program the government runs that runs it well, because because yes. you won't find one. No, exactly. This is it's an absolute joke, and it's uh, it's an absolute insult to Canadians that they've spent well, well over sixty million. We don't know what the final figure is going to be likely because there's not enough documentation out there on and this is just on one computer app where we've blown 60 million tax dollars i mean if the auditor general actually had the staff to start digging into everywhere where this government was mishandling our money and shoveling it out the door to whomever um there'd be riots in the streets yeah well no this is canada and we just shrug our shoulders and move on well i guess we expect the corruption nowadays but that's a that's an indictment in itself yeah, absolutely. It's an indictment of what of the situation. I mean, Canadians just shrug their shoulders, go, oh, huh? what can I do? And they move on. And, you know, it's 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 embarrassing, actually. Yeah, it really is. So um, here we'll uh, let's talk about at least the well, only highlight positive bit of news that we'll talk about in the show today. And that came from you, Lewis. You had sent over some uh, some figures to me that, well, I think Canadians are starting to take their own defense a little more seriously. Firearms licenses are up. Yeah, well, it it surprised me even. Um, firearms licenses have been increasing um, since I believe it was 2009. Uh, and last year, uh, sorry, I've just got to pull this up. Um, last year... Firearms licenses increased in Canada by 87,000 licenses. And that's, that's a big number in a country the size of Canada. And every year since 2009, except for 2021 and 2022, which were COVID years, so a, a lot of, uh, you know, firearms programs weren't even being taught at the time uh the the licenses have increased every year 
Uh, and so last year, like I said, the number is actually 87,694 more in 2023 than in 2022. So firearms ownership has been going up in Canada. And it, so it, it's no wonder the government is trying to curtail it. Um, but uh, because they don't like it when Canadians have guns. Um, but when the legal, and I've, we've talked about this on the show before, licensed firearms owners in Canada are 300% less likely to commit a crime than non-gun owners. And a very good reason for that is that if a licensed firearms owner commits a crime in Canada, they lose their guns. And no firearms owner wants to lose their guns. So they are, you know, they're the most law-abiding people in this country. And so in my book, if you're a government, you should want everybody in the country to have a firearms license because the firearms owners are the ones who, who commit crimes the least. So I don't know. I There's, I know why the liberals are trying to curtail it because they want total control. Um, and the only way to get total control is if people have no means of protection. And if you have no means of protection, then you look to the government to protect you. And so that government gives you, or, or to, you know, ha eventually has control over everything. Um, Pierre Polyev says he'll reverse it. I hope he does. If he doesn't, uh, there's a lot of people in this country who are supporting him strictly on the gun control uh, policies. So if he doesn't follow through on his promises, uh, that purple wave that you talk about um, that is not actually real uh, <laughs> is might become real. I mean, it might not be a, a, a wave that's going to take things over, but it, it, I mean, if you look at the PPC support right now, it's lower than it was in the last election. And that's because Pierre Polyev is saying all the right things. But if he does not follow through on those things, I guarantee you the PPC support will jump. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, well, since you brought that up, why don't, why don't we talk a bit about uh, the upcoming election? Because, well, we've been talking about this since the fall. And we've been wrong a couple of different times on when we thought an election would come along. But... Back in the fall, and I think it was November was the first time that you had said that you were going to predict a May election. Well, look at all the posturing that's going on now. Um, Jagmeet Singh now has somehow got a, a spine inserted into him and has said that, yep, we have to have Pharmacare by March 1st. And we talked about that last week. But this week, his revelation was it has to be universal and a single payer like our healthcare system and the liberal health minister just said, oh, well, no, I'm, you know, I'm sure we can get some legislation, but I'm not married to the idea that it has to be single payer. And so then Jagmeet Singh said, said again, I have very clear, it has to be single payer or maybe the confidence and supply agreement might be in jeopardy. Well, that certainly checks the box to uh, say, okay, well, a budget next month, if Jagmeet Singh is not obligated to support that budget, well, that uh, that puts that mid-March budget to a to a vote, which comes up in well, probably April. 
And if the government falls, that puts us into an election in, well, probably May. Whoa. Yeah. Well, and here's the thing is, is that uh, when was. So Jagmeet Singh has a backbone all of a sudden. Now, why is that? Well, Jagmeet Singh just recently qualified for his pension. What? Yeah. Now, back in November, I predicted a May election simply because I was told by an Elections Canada worker that they have been instructed to be ready for a May election. So that's where my prediction came from. Um, now, and this is why, like, it makes me wonder how much of this is all pre-planned. How much of Jagmeet Singh's sudden backbone, how much all of this uh, is all pre-planned because uh, he's he now qualifies for a pension. The budget is coming up soon. This legislation for uh, for the PharmaCare program is being written at the moment. Uh, and Jagmeet Singh is now threatening to dissolve their agreement. And all in time for, well, like I said, like you said, a May election. So, yeah, I... You know, when some of your conspiracy theories come true, you start seeing conspiracies everywhere, right? And and that's that's the danger of conspiracy theories is that conspiracies do happen. They are real. But when you start predicting things and they all start coming true, then you start to think, that you start to see conspiracies in absolutely everything you look at. And that's, and that's a danger, right? That's why Alex Jones sounds as crazy as he is, even though he's right quite a bit um, is because he is right quite a bit, but he is now sees conspiracies in absolutely everything that he, that he looks at. Right. And that's why some of the things he says are completely off the wall. Right. Um, and he sounds crazy. So I don't want to sound like an Alex Jones, <laughs> but, but this does feel, and it is evidence, uh, you know, this is all pre-planned. Well, it certainly does make you think, I mean, Justin Trudeau's just magically found the right talking point now comparing Polyev to Trump that he believes is going to stick. And well, we played the clip on last week's show about make Canada great again. Oops. Um, and yeah. well, we, we want Pierre to make Canada great again. Thank you very much. And with the by-election coming up in Durham on the 4th of March, I'm thinking that maybe that's going to be the bellwether when I'm sure Jamil Giovanni will win. I mean, that was Aaron O'Toole's old seat, so it's probably relatively a safe conservative seat. But even if the Liberals get 20 odd percent support, which is very likely because it, it, it is a, uh, you know, Southern Ontario riding that JT can look at that and say, oh yeah, I'm confident. We got this. Everyone still loves me. Um, let's engineer our demise at the budget and away we go. Yep. I mean, there's a, uh, I, I, I don't even, yeah, I agree with everything you said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, so we'll, we'll wrap that up just by saying that 
if PharmaCare does go through, by the way, Canada, just know that uh, Izuru, the parliamentary budget officer, said expect a $40 billion bill. So pretty sure it's not going to happen. So we'll see an election before we see PharmaCare. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about this is something that listener Ryan brought up in his his message to us, by the way, was uh, how land use laws are starting to change. And he brought it up in a B.C. context. And Lewis, you know a lot more about this this one than I do. But I noticed that there's also been some land use discussions at the municipal level in Alberta and Saskatchewan. And then I started looking up and there's been many other cases that involve land use agreements and uh, and land claims agreements, for that matter. So it's a. Uh, it's much more of an issue than I ever thought, but with BC, it starts with UNDRIP, does it not? Yeah, UNDRIP was adopted by the uh, provincial NDP a couple of years back, um, which is the UN Declaration of Indigenous Rights of Indigenous Rights. People. Yeah, Rights of Indigenous People. Yeah, UNDRIP, um, which they said would take a couple of years or a few years to really. Uh, incorporate into law after it was passed and that because they have to rewrite all the laws to incorporate the UNDRIP. Um, well, now it's kind of gone going one step further. Uh, and that is this new public land use act that they're proposing or amendments to it that they're proposing. And it is to now 94% of BC's land is publicly owned. Uh, so only six, land. yeah, only 6% of the land in BC is privately owned. 94% is, is crown land. And what the BC government is, proposing is that the BC government will be in a partnership. Uh, you know, also you could also call it like a co-landlord situation uh, with more than 200 first nations groups in, in BC, uh, which makes First Nations, over 200 different First Nations groups in the in the province uh, will have um, power over what public land of Crown land gets used for, what uh, permits are, are granted for land use, uh, whether it be logging, mining, tourism, um, and even hunting and fishing. Uh, because it's not just land, it also applies to water, waterways. Now, this is going to essentially give these First Nations groups a veto over anything that happens, whether it's infrastructure projects like highways or pipelines or power lines even, like uh, uh, ele like electrical transmission lines. Um, and... It's very, very dangerous uh, because BC is already the most unfriendly jurisdiction in North America to to business investment. Uh, BC has the lowest 
business investment in the country. Uh, and, and it's, and, and the, the thing that investors always mention when they're asked is, uh, they say that, uh, first nations land claims is their number one reason for not investing in BC. Um, they're number two and number three are usually regulations of some kind for, uh, uh, the business regulations in BC are, are, are extremely um, punitive. Uh, and so this is only going to make situations worse when you give a special interest group power over what happens, um, on, on land that is essentially owned by the government. Yeah. Now what I thought was interesting with uh, one of the screenshots that you sent me last night, uh, Nathan Cullen, who is the BC Minister of Water, Land and Resource Stewardship, said, right in the article, said, there is no veto power contained in proposed amendments. Two paragraphs later, the, the current Land Act gives final decision-making powers only to the minister in charge to issue leases and licenses for land use. Fantastic. Except Colin said the amendments would bring First Nations into the discussion on land use at the same time as the government and allow provisions in the legislation so they can also sign off on the decision. So there's no veto, but there's a veto. Yeah, that sounds an awful lot like a veto. Right. <laughs> right. If they if they have to have a line to sign off on, then that is a veto. Yeah. And, and I mean, this is, I, I really hate to get controversial here, although I do that quite a bit. I, I hate to get a little controversial here, but first nations almost have a veto on everything now. Um, like if you try to put a pipeline through traditional territory, which is everywhere in BC, um, you have to get the local bands to, to sign off on it. Well, how does that happen? You throw money at them. I mean, my, you know, I have a, I have a cousin who used to work for trans Canada pipelines. And when they were trying to put the Northern gateway pipeline through Northern BC, uh, he said, all you had to do was throw money at the bands. And they, they, like they had all these environmental concerns and that's what they were using was environmental concerns as their reasons for not approving it because, you know, it's their traditional lands. They don't want anything going through them. But if you just threw enough money at them, they would approve anything. Well, and we saw that in the Fort McMurray area with uh, Chief Alan Earl, who had accepted $50,000 personally to uh, put their stamp of approval on an oil sands project up in the, it was north of Fort McMurray where his particular band was. And then, uh, well, he was the guy that we also uh, saw in that video, scrapping it up with an RCMP officer in Fort McMurray. So um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, there was, there was one band in Northern BC that they, they asked trans Canada pipelines for an arena and hockey equipment for all their kids. Oh, that's, that that was the trade that for a pipeline. See and see that those things. I mean, and, and we're yeah, we'll be discussed with First Nations right now. Although there, there is a, certainly a broader context here, and what bothers me is like especially the northern BC, you had 
several different bands along the pipeline route. So if you've got, you know, four or five in Northeast BC on board and just one further along the route, that's, that's going to dig their heels in. Well, you've got no project at all. So it's, I mean, imagine trying to get, you know, you said 200 odd first nations in BC. Yeah. Imagine if you're trying to build a dam and you've got to get, you know, 170 of those bands on board to build the dam and get the transmission lines down to the lower mainland where they're needed. And good luck. Yeah, I'm really, really worried about this because if if uh, First Nations are given a veto over anything that happens on 94% of the land in BC, then um, nothing's going to get done in this province, ever. And uh, one of the problems... And here's the here's one of the big problems, right? They're they're doing this right at the same time that they're trying to electrify everything, and we need power generation built, like tons of power generation built. Well, how are you going to do that without, uh, or when when you're giving a special interest group veto power over anything that happens on public land? And. Yeah. Uh, and, and one of the things that, that, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the uh, listener who, who, uh, wrote in about this, um, Ryan, Ryan. Yeah. He has a grazing license and he said, you know, like those grazing licenses are, will now be, uh, you know, subject to this because in BC there's, uh, there's, um, grazing on public land is something you can, you can get a license for where, uh, you can have like your cattle just roams through the forest. Right. And, uh, and, and, and grazes on public land and you can, and, and, you know, in the fall you go and you round them up and you have a cattle drive and you round them all up and bring them back down to your ranch. Right. Uh, those licenses will be up for uh, uh renewal and they'll have to have be signed off on. Well, what's going to be required to get those sign offs. Yeah. And, and I'm just, uh, it, it scares the hell out of me. In fact, it's so much so that, I mean, even yesterday, my wife and I were talking about what are, do we move? Like, do we, do we move back to Alberta? Like we, I even was looking at real estate last night in, in Alberta because I was like, maybe we, maybe we do, maybe we get the hell out of here because, uh, this province is hell bent on destroying itself. Yeah. Now, what makes BC a bit of a unique case, and as I was looking through Ontario, uh, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Quebec, for example, all have had similar situations, but they've been dealt with under Section 35 of the Constitution Act. And uh, Section 35 deals with, with Aboriginal rights. And the wording of, of Section 35 is that you know, the existing Aboriginal land and treaty rights of Aboriginal peoples are recognized and affirmed. So they've already got this consultation process and it went through some different examples on different land claims in those provinces I'd mentioned dealt with under the constitution. But the problem with BC is a lot of the BC first nations never signed treaties in the first place. So this is really it's crown land, but it's also land that was never actually ceded in a treaty. No, in fact, it's all of them. Uh, there's only been treaties in the last I think 20, 25 years that have been signed. And I think it's only three or four. Uh, like it's not very many that have been signed. There's been the, um, the, uh, the Sutina, no, not the Sutina. 
I'm trying to remember. Yeah, I can't remember. Uh, Sawasan is one uh, down near the coast there, down near Vancouver. Um, there, there's been some uh, uh, some uh, treaties signed that have given them self-government, uh, taxation abilities, stuff like that. Um, but still, the overwhelming majority of First Nations bands in this province don't have treaties. And um, back in the 90s, this has led to a lot of a lot of issues with land claims. Um, back in the 90s, I remember when I was in high school, the cover of the province newspaper uh, in one of their editions came out and it had a map of British Columbia on the on the cover. And the headline was 211% of BC is being claimed in land claims. So, which means that all these bands are claiming the same land as other bands. And so, but 211% of, of BC's territory was being claimed in land claims back in the nineties. So, um, and that hasn't changed much since then because land claim, these land claim negotiations have been going on for decades and decades. And, uh, I mean, how much negotiating is actually happening? I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, yeah, I don't know how you negotiate for decades and decades and decades and, and not have any agreements in place. But, um, so, I mean, BC is got it, you know, it, it's a bit of a predicament and, um, but they're, they're giving, but what the, this proposal is just, it, this is not the way to go about it. Uh, I mean, this is, this is a scary thing, especially considering that the, uh, the BC government is not releasing any details and they want to vote on this in March. Oh, like you're not going to find out anything about this bill until it's presented in, in, the house in the legislature and then they're going to try and ram it through. So I, I mean, I, I don't know why, I don't know what it is about this province where we are just hell bent on destroying ourselves, but we are. And it's, it's a pretty scary situation. Yeah. Well, and here's where, uh, speaking of conspiracies where I have to put my tinfoil hat on because it's not even just the BC government intent on destroying itself in alberta and saskatchewan and i think i've even seen cases in manitoba there are local rural municipalities uh counties if you will in, Al in alberta too that have had presentations talking about land use and limiting the number of quote animal units uh per acre of land and then talking about other how other resources how you they use the water how they take care of the land, the stewardship and whatnot. And when you read through some of how these consulting firms have laid out the, the land use bylaws that they're trying to bring in place, this comes straight out of the UN Sustainability Act. And just think, okay, so wait a minute, you're trying to bring landowners in Canada in line with UN Agenda 2030, and nobody's saying a damn word about it, except us now. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it, it's very scary what's happening because um 
there's this like attempt to crack down on eating meat. Right. And that's partly goes to what you were just talking about with animal units per, per square kilometer. Um, they, I mean, look at an Ireland right now in Ireland right now, the government is trying to, uh, mandate that they kill off a certain percentage of all the cattle that's being raised in Ireland right now, because it's, it's, uh, in the name of climate change. Like, what the hell are we doing? Because at the same time, like they're uh, on one hand, they're, they're trying to eliminate, uh, eating meat. And on the other hand, they're telling farmers they can't use very much fertilizer to grow vegetables. So what are we supposed to eat? I mean, th this is, and this isn't just happening in Ireland. It's happening in France. It's happening in, in, uh, um, uh, Netherlands, the Netherlands, Germany, it, Belgium. Ger yeah. It's happening in all over Europe. It's also, you also are hearing them talk about that here now. I mean, Justin Trudeau last year, I think it was last year, maybe the year before where he was, where he was proposing that we cut fertilizer usage by 30%. And that, uh, and, and then, and then, you know, red meat has been, put on uh, the WHO's list of carcinogens. Um, and uh, I mean, what? I mean, are you, are you trying to starve us? I mean, because if you starve us, then obviously, you know, a hungry people are obedient people because then they, you know, they get their food if they're obedient. Right. I mean, that's what it's all about control, but I mean, it's going to, it's not going to be just control. It's going to be death as well. You know, I mean this, I, I don't know. I, I, I just, it, I'm, I'm flabbergasted. I don't, this is another one of those things like I've talked about in previous shows where I don't understand the end game. Well, you do understand the end game. You've, you've already said it. It's control. I mean, if it was, if it was about sustainability, who is better at stewardship and sustaining the land than farmers, loggers, ranchers, people hunters. who actually hunters? Yeah. People who actually work with the land and understand that, hey, we need to take care of each other so that we so that I can survive and we all can thrive. So uh it's not about sustainability. It's not about the environment. It's completely about control. But it's, it, 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 I know it's about control, but it's like, you're going to end up with death and destruction along the way. I mean, it, it's, I don't, I don't get it. It's like, why, why are they so intent on, on, you know, death and destruction? Yeah, that I don't get either. Yeah. I mean, I get the control end of it because everybody loves power, but yeah, I don't, I completely don't understand that end of it either. So, uh, well, Canada, we love to leave you on a sour note. So uh, let's do we're that good again today. That. Yeah, we're, <laughs> we're good at that. <laughs> Unfortunately, we are. So we, uh, we do want to thank you for joining us. And, uh, well, until next week, it is Tony in Saskatchewan. And Lewis out here in BC for the time being. <laughs> good night, Canada. Good night.
and Tony.